Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. This is from The National on Friday, December the 16th from the news section. Beavers set to be reintroduced to Loch Lomond National Nature Reserve. This article is written by Ross Hunter. A family of beavers are set to be reintroduced into Loch Lomond, signalling the species' return to the iconic loch after hundreds of years of absence. Nature Scott announced that an application by RSPB Scotland to translocate a family of beavers from Tayside to the Loch Lomond National Nature Reserve has been successful. Last year, Biodiversity Minister Lorna Slater announced that the translocation of beavers would now be permitted after the government faced criticism over how many licences it issued to farmers permitting them to shoot the animals when their dams caused flooding. A 23-year strategy published by Nature Scott in September earmarked more than a quarter of a million acres across Scotland that would be suitable habitat for beavers, suggesting that such relocations will become more common. However, licences for lethal control are still issued to landowners as a last resort. Preparations are now underway to move the small family group. The beavers will be captured at their current location in Tayside before undergoing a series of health checks. Then they will be transported to the RSPB Scotland Nature Reserve for release. The animals will be closely monitored by staff on the reserve, Duncan Orr Ewing, Head of Species and Land Management at RSPB Scotland, said. We are incredibly excited to be able to offer a home to these amazing animals. The Loch Lomond NNR is an ideal home for beavers with fen, open water and wet woodland habitat for them to explore. Beavers are nature's wetland creators, capable of creating and managing habitats in a way that we could never hope to achieve. We are looking forward to seeing the benefits that beavers bring to the wider biodiversity, including amphibians, fish and wetland birds, as well as our visitors who will hopefully see some of their engineering work over the coming years. Under current rules, all proposals to move beavers within Scotland require a licence from Nature Scott. Ahead of proposing the move, RSPB Scotland undertook extensive consultation with the local community and held various events, informing people about the plans and of the beneficial impacts of beaver on Scotland's ecology. Beavers became extinct in Scotland in the 16th century, largely due to overhunting and a loss of wetland habitat. However, Around 20 years ago, a small number were released illegally into the River Tay. Their numbers grew rapidly, and after an official reintroduction project in the Knapdale Forest in Argyll was deemed a success, the animals were permitted to stay. 
While their presence can have an impact on agricultural land, which can become flooded as a result of their dam building, they also create wet woodland habitats that benefit a whole range of species, including dragonflies and fish. Their activity can also reduce the speed of water flow, reducing the risks of flash flooding and improve water quality by trapping sediments. That article was written by Ross Hunter. This is from The National on Friday, December the 16th, from the Politics section. How independence activists feel about IndyRef2 cash being reallocated. This article is written by Laura Pollock. We asked Scottish independence supporters how they feel about the government's budget announcement that the £20 million budget for a second independence referendum will be reallocated to support vulnerable people against rising energy bills. It comes after the Supreme Court's ruling that Scotland needs Westminster's consent to hold Indy Ref 2 ruled out a legal vote being put forward next year. At the end of the 2023-24 budget, Acting Finance Secretary John Swinney explained that the £20 million, which had been earmarked for IndyRef2, would instead be spent on extending the Fuel Insecurity Fund. Swinney said the Scottish Government still believed Scots had a right to vote on the country's future. Here's what the campaigners had to say. Believe in Scotland. Believe in Scotland founder Gordon McIntyre-Kemp said, With the referendum route to independence closed, the SNP were between a rock and a hard place on this. SSIM further added, South Scotland has some of Scotland's most deprived areas and suffers greatly from fuel poverty. We hope the budget announced today will go some way to improve lives here. The Scottish Government is working to improve lives across the nation as they fund the expansion of free school meals, programmes to help families heat their homes as well as increase funding for social security, and they, as well as local YES groups like SSIM, will continue to work towards securing Scotland's independence. That was written by Laura Pollock. This is from The National on Friday, December the 16th, from the news section. Exclusive. Ross Greer, MSP, condemns Flamingoland developers' promises. This is written by Ross Hunter. The Scottish Greens have condemned promises made by the developers of a proposed holiday park on the shores of Loch Lomond. Earlier this month, the National Park Authority expressed concerns about Lomond Bank's development in Baloch, which would see the construction of up to 127 self-catering cottages, a water park and a monorail in the Lomond and Trossachs National Park. Officials from the National Park Authority requested answers on 16 separate issues from Lomond Bank's contractor Stantec, including about its impact on the environment. Among the issues raised was a lack of clarity on how the project would impact ancient woodlands and water quality. However, Lohman Banks has now released a document which aims to reassure locals that the development will make a positive impact on the area. The legal document, labelled the Lomond Promise, 
commits the developer to the vows it has made to the community at pre-application stage relating to employment and training, supporting local businesses and supply chain, alongside measures to maintain and conserve the ancient woodland of Drumkinnon Wood. The Lohman promise removes any doubt that may exist within the local community about our intentions for the site in the long term, and demonstrates our commitment to being an active and responsible participant of the Ballock business community, said Jim Patterson, Development Director for Lomond Banks. It's very clear in this situation that the community and their thoughts around our proposed development must be heard and properly considered, so we have directly addressed those concerns by providing the community with what is essentially a contractual guarantee that the measures we have put forward will be delivered. He added, the Lomond promise sets out a legally binding contract that should planning permission in principle be granted, we will be legally obliged to implement its terms as part of the development. We are steadfast in our belief that we can bring considerable economic and social benefit to Baloch and the wider area with our proposed development, not to mention a much-loved tourism destination that will revitalise the gateway to Loch Lomond and offer a wider boost to existing businesses that already operate here. The promise also states that a woodland management plan for the protection, maintenance and enhancement of Drumkin and Wood would also be put in place to preserve and maintain the ancient woodland. However, Scottish Greens MSP Ross Greer has questioned the sincerity of the promise. Speaking to The National, he said, Local people have had enough of flamingo land trying to pull the wool over their eyes. These so-called promises are contrary to what is actually in their plans, which will wreck local woodland, increase traffic levels and would inevitably restrict access to the site. Even if we were to take the company at their word, flamingo land are setting a very low bar for themselves on just about every count. The 34,000 objections lodged so far and the surveys which show local residents are opposed by a margin of 3 to 1 show just how strongly people feel about protecting the world-famous natural landscape of Loch Lomond. No amount of warm words and non-binding promises can change the fact that this is a garish, oversized and totally inappropriate development one that would have huge and negative consequences for Baloch and Loch Lomond. We are confident that the National Park will recognise this and show Flamingo Land the door once again. In 2019, the first proposal was rejected after more than 60,000 people signed a petition which opposed the development and National Park officials recommended it be abandoned. However, the plans were resurrected in 2020 under a new name. This article was written by Ross Hunter. This is from The National on Friday, December the 16th, from the Politics section. Scottish Budget, the six key announcements you need to know. Written by Hamish Morrison. John Swinney announced today's budget in what he called the most turbulent economic and financial context most people can remember. 
a package of spending cuts worth about £1.2 billion, has previously been announced in smaller updates earlier in the year. And on Thursday, the Acting Finance Secretary announced public spending would be funded in part by a raid on the earnings of Scotland's best-off taxpayers. Here's everything you need to know from the Scottish Budget. Taxes increased for highest earners. Taxes are being put up on the best-off to fund extra spending on the NHS, Swinney announced. Those earning more than £43,662 will now pay an extra penny in the pound on tax. For those on the higher rate of tax, this means that they will pay 42 pence in the pound in tax, while those on the additional rate will see 47 pence in the pound going to the public purse. More people will pay the top rate of income tax, the Deputy First Minister said, by lowering the threshold at which people qualify for the additional rate from £150,000 to £125,140. Swinney said, It is, in short, an extra penny to enable spending on the patient care in our NHS. Other tax increases were also announced, including raising the tax on the owners of second homes and holiday homes, who will see the additional dwelling supplement from 4% to 6%. In total, Swinney said, the tax changes would raise £553 million for public spending in the next financial year. Small Business Support Package Non-domestic rates for businesses will be frozen at the basic rate, something Swinney said would save businesses £308 million than if they were raised in line with inflation. He also reaffirmed an SNP manifesto commitment that around 100,000 properties would not be subject to rates altogether. Benefits to rise with inflation The Scottish Child Payment, which is available to around 387,000 children across the country and has been hailed by independent commentators as a game-changer in tackling child poverty, will remain at its current level of £25 per child per week. All other benefits controlled by the Scottish Government will be increased in line with the rate of inflation in September, which was 10.1%, slightly lower than the most recent level of 10.7%. Indiref 2 Budget Axed Spending on preparations for a second independence referendum will be diverted to a scheme to help people suffering from fuel poverty, Swinney announced. The £20 million earmarked for the Scottish Government's plans to hold a second vote on the country's future will instead be used to extend the Fuel Insecurity Fund. Swinney said that he had to make full use of the resources available to me while a second referendum was off the cards, following the Scottish Government's defeat in the Supreme Court earlier this year. He added, In order to help our most vulnerable citizens, I intend to utilise the finance earmarked for a referendum on independence to make provision to extend our fuel insecurity fund into next year, a further £20 million to address yet another failure of the United Kingdom and its policies. End to peak fares.
Peak time train fares will be a thing of the past in Scotland during a six-month trial period. It is not yet known when this pilot will begin, Swinney said. This would cost the state £15 million. This is on top of £1.4 billion committed to maintaining, operating and decarbonising rail infrastructure, £60 million to electric vehicle charging and £200 million in active travel, such as cycling and walking. The Scottish Government will give £72 million over the next two financial years to the nationalised Ferguson Marine to complete the construction of two delayed and over-budget boats for the Calmac Ferry Service and two more ships which are being procured. Health and Social Care Spending Swinney announced the Scottish Government would invest £13 billion in NHS boards in the year ahead. Some £2 billion will go to services like GP surgeries and pharmacies in a boost to primary health care, he said. And £1.7 billion will be spent on social care, including money to establish the already troubled proposed National Care Service, about which grave concerns have been raised by unions, councils and backbench SNP MSPs. On tackling drug and alcohol-related health problems, the government has pledged £160 million, part of an already announced £250 million to tackling the drug deaths crisis. This article was written by Hamish Morrison. From the National, Tuesday the 20th of December 2022, from the news section, Gender reform debate suspended after protest in public gallery. Report by Ross Hunter. The final debate on changes to gender recognition legislation has been severely disrupted after members of the public protested in the public gallery. MSPs gathered to debate a whopping 153 amendments to the Gender Recognition Reform Scotland Bill before the final vote is held on Wednesday. Proceedings were almost immediately suspended after a motion submitted by the Scottish Conservatives which sought to delay the vote on the grounds it had not been sufficiently consulted on, was not circulated to all MSPs. Presiding Officer Alison Johnson briefly suspended the chamber while the oversight was rectified. The motion was then defeated in a vote. However, after MSPs voted down an amendment put forward by Conservative MSP Russell Finlay, which sought to pause applications for a Gender Recognition Certificate, GRC, made by those charged with domestic abuse and fraud, an argument broke out in the public gallery. A member of the public could be heard to say, shame on all of you, as the amendment was defeated, while another responded by telling them to shut up. The proceedings were once again suspended. The entire public gallery was then cleared, with some MSPs stating that those who refused to leave were threatened with arrest by police officers. The debate continued after a suspension of around 30 minutes, yet Labour MSP Pam Duncan Glancy was critical of the decision to entirely clear the public gallery. She said it was a disproportionate response and noted her approval that members of the public were being allowed back into the chamber. Elsewhere in the debate amendments, which sought to maintain the age that a person can apply for a GRC to 18, were voted down, though not before a fractious disagreement between Tory MSP Rachel Hamilton and Scottish Greens MSP Maggie Chapman. After SNP MSP Ash Regan, who rebelled against her party whip during the stage 2 vote on the legislation, 
expressed concerns that reducing the age that people can apply for a GRC would negatively impact neurodivergent children. Maggie Chapman raised a point of order during an amendment being put forward by Rachel Hamilton. Chapman asked whether Hamilton thought that it was wrong to weaponize neurodiversity and neurodivergent young people and say that they were incapable of making decisions for themselves. Hamilton said Chapman's intervention was disgraceful and that it lowered the tone of the debate. She added that one of her own family members was neurodivergent and told Chapman to never intervene in that matter again because it's very upsetting from a personal point of view. But when Green MSP Lorna Slater, who is herself neurodivergent, requested her own point of order during Hamilton's speech, she was denied by the Tory MSP. However, Labour's Daniel Johnson, who is also neurodivergent, was permitted a point of order and said that while he understood Chapman's concerns, it was incredibly important we think through this carefully. Earlier in the debate, Tory MSPs were criticised for delaying the proceedings by raising a series of points of order and amendments to the week's business agenda before amendments in the bill could be heard. The debate will continue into tomorrow. And that report was by and that report was by Ross Hunter. From the National Tuesday the twentieth of december twenty twenty two from the news section Exclusive Stephen Flynn rejects idea of regular Westminster stunts by SNP by Judith Duffy. The SNP's new Westminster leader has pledged to make Scotland's voice heard in London, but said radical actions such as walking out the chamber on a weekly basis will not achieve the aims of the party. Stephen Flynn said past actions such as a mass walkout of SNP MPs in 2018 to protest over Brexit were justified, but they did not believe the people in Scotland would welcome seeing stunts at Westminster every week. After some turbulent weeks for the group at Westminster with reports of leadership coups and front-page resignations, he insisted the SNP group is close-knit and focused. In an interview with The National, he also denied suggestions he will be seeking more autonomy from the SNP leadership in Edinburgh, describing Nicola Sturgeon as the best politician in Europe. A change of leadership for the SNP at Westminster has led some voices within the independence movement to call for the party to take a more radical approach. However, Flynn said there is a time and place for disruptive tactics and there had to be a reason for acting in such a way. When that's been done in the past, it has been done justifiably, he said. Our focus, I think, rightly, needs to be on holding the UK government to account and promoting the brilliant work of the Scottish government where possible but making that case for Scottish independence. Now walking out of the chamber on a weekly basis will not achieve any of those aims. It just means there's going to be nobody there to stand up for our constituents and speak out for Scotland. He added, Where there's opportunities to do things, we will explore that. But that's not my focus, and I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure that the people of Scotland would be overly welcome to turning on the TV and seeing stunts every week, particularly when at the end of the day they don't achieve a huge amount. Flynn, who has denied plotting a coup against his predecessor Ian Blackford, described the group of SNP MPs at Westminster as really close-knit and focused. However, there has been three designations from the front bench since this election, Stuart MacDonald, Chris Law and Pete Wishart, who issued a letter saying he was bemused by the changes in the leadership. Flynn said he, of course, has spoken to Wishart since then, adding that he's always had a good relationship with the MP for Perth and North Perthshire. He said, he's one of my favourite colleagues down here. He's been at the forefront of the Scottish independence movement for a long time now 
and has achieved so much that we will just continue to work closely together going forward. The same applies with Stuart and Chris as well. I'm really focused on making sure that we do all come together and those guys have got a really key role to play within that. I know that when we go into that independence battleground we will all be standing shoulder to shoulder which is the most important thing in all of that. Asked about claims that Flynn's plans to seek more autonomy for the group for the SNP leadership in Edinburgh, he said this is one of many reports that has no basis in fact. Hopefully we can complement her excellent work because, after all, it's the First Minister who has taken us into this position. She is the most successful, probably the best, politician in Europe, he said. We've got a lot to be grateful for and it's quite an opportunity for me and Marie Black to work alongside her to really push that independence case. When it comes to Labour surging in the UK polls and predictions they may win the next general election, Flynn said he is not overly concerned about a potential threat to SNP votes. He said, We've obviously read a lot about the potential for Labour to maybe pick up some seats in Scotland, but this is them sitting under high watermark and they're barely squeaking a couple of seats in Scotland, so I'm not overly concerned about that. What we need to be focused on is our messaging and, when we ultimately look back at our message and our positive vision for Scotland, I think the people of Scotland will buy into that. By stark contrast, the Labour Party, under Keir Starmer, when it comes to Brexit, when it comes to migration, when it comes to Scotland's right to choose, they are very much hand in glove with the Conservative Party. It's still better together in all but name. He added, So I think when it comes to the country, it comes to the general election, in the years to come, the folk to will cast their ballots will be very wise to Labour's policies in relation to Scotland and, ultimately, the fact that they don't marry in with what the people of Scotland want. Flynn has enjoyed a rapid rise to the top, having been elected as an MP only three years ago and, in that short time, has also experienced some extremely turbulent political times brought by Brexit, the pandemic, Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. He added, I wish we could get to a point where every single person in Scotland could come down and sit and watch proceedings in this place to see how out of touch it is with reality, how out of touch it is with the priorities of people back home, and I think that would be quite a powerful thing. Obviously, that's never going to happen, but being here, just strive to home your sense of making sure you deliver that change, and we deliver independence for Scotland. And that report was by Judith Duffy. From the National... Monday the 19th of December 2022 From the comment section An early Holyrood election should only be used as a nuclear option by George Caravan How sound, or otherwise, is the idea of deliberately collapsing the Scottish Government thus participating in an early Holyrood election in order to hold a de facto independence referendum? This notion has been put forward by SNP MP Angus Brendan McNeil, among others. It stands in stark contrast to the FM's plan to use the next Westminster general election, coming probably in late 2024, as a plebiscite in independence. The mechanics of collapsing the current Scottish Government are, at least theoretically, straightforward. If the First Minister resigns, whoever they may be, then the Scottish Parliament collectively has to elect a replacement within 28 days or call an election. If Nicola resigns and the SNP Greens MSPs vote down any offered replacement from the Tory or Labour ranks, an election follows automatically. It is also the case, under the provisions of the Scotland Act, that if two-thirds of MSPs vote for it, a Holyrood election can be called. 
However, this shoot is blocked because the combined SNP green block falls short of the two thirds necessary. Of course, the Labour and Tory Turkeys might vote for Christmas, but I doubt it. Which leaves the arcane procedure of refusing to elect a new FM until an election is made inevitable. What are the advantages of this new Plan B? Clearly it allows the national, nation, the national movement to call a de facto referendum at the time of its own choosing. Better still, it lets the national movement set the agenda. Using a UK general election puts the timing of the indie campaign into the hands of Rishi Sunak. And getting media time for Scotland during a UK election would be very difficult. The UK broadcasters will prioritise unionist politicians and all Britain issues. Nicola will be lucky to get invited into any of the major TV debates. But a Holyrood election puts us virtually the entire media focus on the independence question. There might be a few other advantages, especially if we go for a Holyrood election next October, the original date slated for an actual second referendum. The big unionist parties may, may be reluctant to spend their financial war chest ahead of the 2024 UK general election. But, one supposes, the SNP and the wider national movement will spend, spend, spend on the 2023 Holyrood election because it is a do-or-die operation. If we lose the de facto referendum, then who cares about any subsequent UK election? What are the counter-arguments to engineering a Holyrood election come referendum? The most glaring one is that the history of governments calling unnecessary elections, unnecessary as in being out with the normal five-yearly cycle, is mostly disastrous. In short, the electorate usually smells a rat and delivers a verdict precisely the opposite of what those politicians calling the election expected. In February 1974, Tory PM Ted Heath called a snap general election in the premise of who governs Britain in order to defeat a miners' strike. Throughout the campaign, 25 of the 26 opinion polls gave Tories the lead. But come election day, the electorate famously gave a different answer than the one Heath expected and Labour was returned to power. Again, in 2017, new PM Theresa May called a general election only after only two years after the previous one had given the Tories their first majority since 1992. May thought a snap election would let her capitalise on Jeremy Corbyn's capture of the Labour leadership. And again, the opinion polls suggested Labour would be trounced. But the electorate were less than impressed and May lost her overall majority. Conclusion after voters deliver a mandate, they expect the elected government to get on with the job. When politicians try to be too clever, the electorate is apt to punish them, as it did with Theresa May. Recent opinion polls certainly show a shift towards a majority for Scottish independence. This suggests that the Scottish electorate not only feels trapped in an involuntary union, but also that it is still blaming the cost of living crisis on Westminster. Yet this may not translate into the public support for an early Holyrood election. It is still less than two years since that same Scottish electorate returned the SNP to power at Holyrood precisely as a shield against the Tories. It is possible that many anti-Tory voters will be flummoxed, if not downright resentful, if they are asked to repeat the exercise so soon. This is not a definitive argument against engineering an out-of-season Holyrood election as a surrogate NDRF2 but it does suggest such a strategy is a high-risk one. It also nicely sets up the arguments for Labour and the Tories. The Nats are more concerned with the Constitution than dealing with the economic crisis. The Nats already have a majority, so why aren't they getting on with the day job? You know the script. There are other difficulties with the Holyrood election manoeuvre. 
It assumes that Westminster will simply sit in its bahookie and let the national movement use the Scotland Act to its own advantage. But looking at the situation in Northern Ireland, where the Democratic Unionists have deliberately sabotaged the Stormont Power Sharing Agreement in order to blackmail the UK government into abandoning the EU trade protocol, technically, we should now be seeing another Northern Ireland election as a route out of the deadlock. But the Westminster Tory government has actually delayed calling another Stormont election. If Westminster can monkey about with the Belfast Agreement, then it can monkey about with the Scotland Act. I would not put it past Westminster to use emergency powers, orders in council, or even fresh legislation to block the SNP from deliberately collapsing the Holyrood administration and precipitating an early election. After all, they could argue, we're about to see a UK general election, so what's the hurry? At the very least, expect disgruntled unionists to head for the Supreme Court to seek clarity on whether it's constitutional to deliberately provoke an unnecessary Holyrood election. Let's suppose the indie movement succeeds in holding an early Holyrood election and wins it. Let's posit a 55 popular vote for the pro-independence parties come October. Time to run up the saltire. Don't get too excited. True, the national movement would hold the moral and political high ground, but nothing would have changed constitutionally. It would still be up to Westminster to agree on whether it should hold their independence negotiations or not. Expect delay and prevarication. In these circumstances, would the SNP Green Alliance be willing to accept the sovereignty of the Scottish people and declare independence anyway? For that is the ultimate logic of such an electoral contest. Indeed, the veiled have declared the intention of subsequent unilateral action is the only way to ensure that Westminster takes seriously the outcome of a Holyrood independence election. On balance, I think the arguments for an induced Holyrood election and de facto referendum trump the use of a UK general election where the independent question inevitably will be swamped. However, the Holyrood manoeuvre, let's call it that, is a nuclear option. Without proper preparation and without a headwind of popular support, it could blow up in our faces. Not an easy choice. And that was a comment piece by George Caravan. From the National, Monday the 19th of December 2022, from the comment section, Kirsty Strickland, hateful posts about Lake Tragedy were grotesque. By Kirsty Strickland. Last week, there was a breaking news alert about a serious incident that occurred in Solly Hall. Details were scant. All that was known was that a number of people had been rescued from a frozen lake and taken to hospital in critical condition. For most people, reading that news would provoke feelings of sympathy or sadness. But for some in social media, this worrying news was just a perfect opportunity to act like a terrible human being. Rumours move faster than verified facts, and so, before we knew anything about more about the incident, speculation was rife. So too was blame and the kind of grotesque jokes that instantly marked the authors out as thoroughly unpleasant people. When the facts became known, the hateful comments only intensified. Emergency services said that four children had been rescued and taken to hospital after they fell through ice. The horror of that should be enough to shut up even the most dedicated idiots. But it wasn't. Instead of saying something supportive or simply saying nothing at all, some took to social media to blame the parents for the terrible accidents that their children had suffered. Others went further and chastised the victims themselves as they fought for their lives in the hospital. It is frankly terrifying that people with such little empathy for others walk among us. 
You don't need to be a parent to get some idea of the agony these mum and dads were going through during that time. For people who do have children of their own, it is a kind of scenario that is almost too painful to contemplate, even in a hypothetical sense. Yet these hateful girls with proud mum to three girls in their social media profiles utterly fail to understand the damage their words could do to people that were experiencing every parent's worst nightmare. Has social media unleashed this darkness within us or was it always there, just without a platform to show itself? With every new update about the incident, there were renewed attacks on the kids lying in hospital as well as their devastated parents. When a child is injured, it is not an opportune time to offer lectures about what they should have done differently to avoid it. When that child is not yours, when you don't know the age of that child, the condition of that child, or any additional information other than what Sky News alerts are telling you, it's never the time for unasked advice or scolding. This stuff should be blindingly obvious. It should be so ingrained in the psyche of every functioning adult that it doesn't even need pointing out. Tragedy doesn't require sanctimonious commentary, under any circumstances. That warped notion that I'm a good parent so this terrible thing would never happen to my family reminds me of an incident from when my wee girl had just started school. Even when she was younger, she was always reliably predictable. She wasn't the kind of kid that made well dashes out of sight. She was careful, cautious and followed every safety rule I'd ever given her. I wasn't deserving of any credit for this state of near-constant obedience, but as a naturally nervy parent, I was certainly glad of it. Then, one day, we were walking past the wee shop that we got to pretty much every day. To get home, we have to cross a really busy road. That day, we were walking and chatting, then out of nowhere, a cat rushed towards her and she panicked. She ran straight out onto the road and in- into incoming traffic. I caught her and lifted her up just in time. We've had loads of conversations about road safety in the past, which she seemed to have absorbed and understood. But, as a parent, it's impossible to safeguard their advice against every conceivable circumstance. There but for the grace of God go I. The four children rescued from the lake have since died. Finlay was eight. Thomas was eleven. Jack was ten. Samuel, who was six, died on Wednesday after days in hospital. Their deaths are an incalculable loss which their grieving families and friends will never will never fully recover from. Tributes to the boys have been left near the site where the incident happened. On Saturday, a vigil in Babs Mill Park was attended by hundreds of people. An online fundraiser for the families of the boys has raised more than £66,000. This showing of support will hopefully bring some comfort to those who knew and loved these bo- those wee boys. That instinct to care for those who are going through the most difficult time in their lives is a normal one. The social media vitriol we have seen over this tragedy is not. Those who gleefully heap misery and judgement upon strangers in pain should remember that the targets of their hate are real people. And if such a concept is beyond the realms of understanding, then they should do us all a favour and log off social media until they learn how to use it in a way that does not cause real life harm. And that was a comment piece by Kirsty Strickland. Recorded from the National on the 20th of December 2022. From the Culture section, recorded by Amy. Channel 4 Gogglebox stars Mika and Marcus quit show by Kieran Doody. Gogglebox stars Mika and Marcus have revealed they're quitting the popular Channel 4 show in a lengthy statement. The duo are putting down the remote after five years on the show. In a statement they said, We've had so much fun with you all tuning in at home and the hard-working Gogglebox crews, but it's time to put down the remote and see what else God has in store for us.
To everyone that has tuned in and sent us messages of love and encouragement over the years, we appreciate every last one of you. Thank you so much. The joint statement added, We want to say a massive thank you to at C4 Gogglebox for having us for the last five years, even though we had to travel so far for filming, downstairs and through the corridor. It was so worth it. It's been an epic journey. You guys are the bestest of the best. The amazing cast, you'll forever be our G-Box brothers and sisters for life. And lastly, to our yardy friends and family that always big us up to whoever will listen when you're chatting about our departure, the program's called Gogglebox, not Googlebox. It's not a damn search engine. They signed off saying we love you. Co-star Izzy Warner replied, we'll miss you both. A viewer replied, no, big mesh, me and my boyfriend absolutely adore you too. Sounds silly to say your personalities just fit so well. Another added, no, we'll miss watching you guys, but best wishes to you as you begin your new journey. That article was by Kieran Doody. Recorded from the National on the 20th of December 2022. From the Culture section, recorded by Amy. Primal Scream and Charlatan's keyboardist Martin Duffy dies age 55 by Adam Robertson. Martin Duffy, who played keyboard in Primal Scream and the Charlatans, has died age 55, as former bandmate Tim Burgess has announced. Duffy was born in Birmingham in May 1967 and began his career as a member of the indie pop band Felt. He played on the first two albums by Scottish rockers Primal Scream before joining the Charlatans in 1996, following the death of original keyboard player Rob Collins. On Twitter, Primal Scream said, Hard to write this, we never know how to speak around death other than polite platitudes. All I want to say is that our soul brother Martin Duffy passed away on Sunday. He suffered a brain injury due to a fall at his home in Brighton. We in Primal Scream are all so sad. Duffy also contributed keys to songs by Oasis, The Chemical Brothers and Beth Arton. Burgess, frontman of the Charlatan, said on Twitter, Another tragic loss of a beautiful soul. Martin Duffy stepped in to save the charlatans when we lost Rob. He played with us at Nebworth and was a true friend. He toured with me and my solo band too. He was a pleasure to spend time with. Safe travels, Duffy. No cause of death was given. Trainspotting author Irvin Welsh also paid tribute. Writing on Twitter, he said, Yesterday was a heartbreak. The last time I saw Martin was at my wedding in the summer, when he wrapped his arms around myself and my wife and wished us all the love in the world. He had a golden heart and the craziest sense of humour. I'm really going to miss him. Happy Monday singer Rowetta shared a series of heartbreak emojis while former Oasis guitarist Paul Bonehead Arthurs tweeted, Sad, sad news, Tim. Duffy joined Felt pioneers of the so-called jangle pop genre age 16 after answering an advertisement placed in the, by the group's anonymous frontman, Lawrence, that read, Do you want to be a rock and roll star? He was also a member of the rock supergroup The Chavs, formed in 2004 by former Libertines guitarist Cal Barat and Burgess alongside drummer Andy Burroughs from Razorlight. In 2012, he performed as part of another supergroup at a fundraising concert at Manchester Cathedral, this time featuring Burgess and Mark Collins of The Charlatans with Peter Hook of New Order. In recent years, he also toured as part of Burgess's live band playing music from the singer's solo albums. That article was by Adam Robertson. The National. Politics on Wednesday the 21st of December. Labour's Alexander plots Westminster return. An article written by Xander Elliott. 
Labour grandee Douglas Alexander, who served in both Tony Blair and Gordon Brown's cabinets, has put his name forward to run in the next Westminster election, reports say. Mr Alexander, a former Scottish secretary, is said to have applied to stand for Labour in either East or Midlothian in the next general election. He previously held the Paisley and Renfrewshire South seat, formerly Paisley South, from 1997 to 2015, before a humiliating defeat at the hand of the SNP's Mary Black. Ms Black, who was just 20 when she defeated the top Labour figure, now has a majority of some 10,000 votes, with Labour activists in Lothian said to be claiming Mr Alexander is running scared of facing her again. The Edinburgh Evening News quoted one Labour source as questioning why Mr Alexander wasn't going after one of the Paisley seats where he has connections, with the suggestion he's only interested in a winnable seat, not representing local people. The former Cabinet Minister has submitted an application to run in either East Lothian or Mid Lothian, according to the journalist Michael Crick through his Twitter account. If Mr Alexander were to run in East Lothian, he'd be up against Alba's Kenny McCaskill, who took the seat from the SNP when he defected to Alex Salmond's new party in early 2021. The former Scottish Justice Secretary has a majority of some 4,000 votes. The SNP is also said to be planning to stand a candidate in the East Lothian seat, which could give Labour a stronger chance due to a division in the pro-independence vote. It's thought to be one of their top targets in Scotland in the next Westminster vote. Midlothian is currently held by the SNP's Owen Thompson, but has changed hands between his party and Labour frequently over the elections since 2010. Scottish Labour reportedly want to confirm their candidate selection before their spring conference. Its constituency twinning system for areas such as East and Midlothian says there has to be a gender balance across the shortlists. An article written by Xander Elliotts. The National News on Wednesday the 21st of December. Engineers assessing damage from landslide near the falls of Kruachan. An article written by Ninian Wilson. Engineers are continuing to assess and clear a landslide that has led to a railway closure and an 84-mile road diversion for drivers in Argyll and Butte. The landslide saw about 100 tonnes of debris fall onto the A85 near the falls of Kruachan on Monday afternoon. It led to the closure of the Oban branch of the West Highland Railway line and the A85 at Lahore in both directions, leaving drivers facing an 84-mile diversion. Network Rail and Bear Scotland are working together to assess and clear the debris. Eddie Ross, Bear Scotland's operating company representative, said, Safety is our top priority and a full assessment is currently being undertaken. We thank the local community and road users for their patience and assure them we're doing everything we can alongside our partners in Police Scotland and Network Rail to address this challenging situation as quickly and safely as we can. Road users should also check Traffic Scotland for the latest information. Engineers were on site earlier on Tuesday morning, carrying out an initial assessment, and found that the landslip occurred on Ben Kruachan's lower slopes, 80 to 100 metres above the railway. Boulders, trees and waterlogged soil tumbled down the mountain, covering the track and reaching the road 30 metres below. 
Assessments from a helicopter are also being carried out, but Network Rail is unsure when the railway will reopen and has started moving machinery into position to clear the debris as soon as possible. Traffic Scotland tweeted earlier, The A85 Bridge of Awe to Loch Awe carriageway remains closed in both directions due to a hazard caused by a rockfall. All traffic is diverted. Latest information suggests that one lane of the road has since reopened. An article written by Ninian Wilson. The National News on Wednesday the 21st of December. Jeremy Clarkson column receives highest ever number of Ipso complaints. An article written by Adam Robertson. Jeremy Clarkson's newspaper column, in which he said he hated Meghan Markle, has become the independent press standards organisation's most complained about article. It's now received more than 17,500 complaints, with the SNP's Westminster group writing to The Sun, saying they're deeply concerned by the hateful use of language. The previous most complained about article was published in the Scottish Sun in August 2020 about the Stonehaven train derailment, which received more than 16,860 complaints. The piece has faced significant backlash, including from the First Minister, who said that Mr Clarkson's words were deeply misogynist. The SNP Group's letter follows on from John Nicholson, who had already written to the chief executive of ITV. It reads... To print a comparison of the democratically elected First Minister of Scotland to a serial killer is shocking and entirely inappropriate. Mr Clarkson's political views should not be an excuse for engaging in this gratuitous hatred. It's no wonder we have fewer women in political life across all parties than we ought to when this kind of narrative is seen as acceptable. The letter continued to say that the piece should never have been printed and that his bile-filled, violent rant rightly led to widespread criticism. It added, It's entirely possible to disagree without resorting to the misogyny and violent language Mr Clarkson used. The Sun should recognise this, retract this article and apologise. The Sun declined to comment when approached by The National. An article written by Adam Robertson. The National News on Wednesday the 21st of December. Nicola Sturgeon and the STUC demand UK government action on rail strikes. An article written by Xander Elliots. The Tories must act to stop the disruption to Scotland's railways due to strike action against UK government-controlled train companies. The First Minister and the Scottish Trades Union Congress have said in a rare joint statement... Nicola Sturgeon said that the UK government's refusal to engage with rail workers was having a major impact on Scottish services. And the STUC's General Secretary, Ros Foyer, called on the Westminster government to follow the lead set by its Scottish counterpart in reaching a deal with the trade unions. The dramatic joint intervention comes as thousands of members of the Rail, Maritime and Transport Union, or RMT, employed by the UK government-owned Network Rail, are set to walk out from 6pm on Christmas Eve until 6am on December 27th in a dispute over jobs, pay and conditions. Services are due to follow the normal timetable between December 28th and December 30th, but on Hogmanay services will stop earlier than usual and more rail misery is to follow in 2023. The RMT has also announced strike plans for January the 3rd and January the 4th, 
as well as January the 6th and January the 7th. Those strike dates were announced after talks between RMT leader Mick Lynch and Conservative Rail Minister Hugh Merriman failed last week, with negotiations between the two sides remaining deadlocked. Ms Sturgeon said that the repercussions of the UK government's failure to reach a deal with workers would impact on Scotland. The Scottish government has maintained constructive discussions with the trade unions and settled our own pay negotiations by embracing the concept of fair work, she said. Despite this, passengers in Scotland will face severe disruption as a direct result of the ongoing UK-wide rail dispute between Network Rail, UK government rail operators and the trade unions, and Network Rail employees in Scotland face entering the new year still with no pay rise. The repercussions of this dispute and the UK government's refusal to engage constructively with the trade unions are continuing to have a major impact, not only for the rail workers, but for passengers, freight, businesses and the wider public in Scotland over the festive period and into 2023. The Secretary of State for Transport must intervene immediately and work with the trade unions to secure a railway that benefits users, staff and the wider public. Ms Foyer, who at the head of the STUC represents some 540,000 workers, said the disruption in Scotland was due to the combative approach to negotiations taken by the UK government. She said, We all want to see an end to the rail dispute and for workers to be awarded a fair pay offer that is not conditional on cuts to staffing and services. In Scotland, workers have already agreed their pay claim, but we're still seeing widespread disruption on our railways. This is due to the combative approach to negotiations taken by the UK government, which has led to the protracted dispute between Network Rail and the UK government. The rail unions and the Scottish government have come to a negotiated settlement and we need the UK government to take a similar approach that results in workers at Network Rail and other UK government-controlled rail companies getting the deal they deserve. A Network Rail spokesperson said on Tuesday evening, The dispute is not going to be solved through strike action, only through negotiation. Members of the TSSA and Unite Unions have both voted to resoundingly accept the very same deal that the RMT continues to reject. Our offer, which is worth over 9% over two years, with a guarantee of no compulsory redundancies and no changes to anyone's terms and conditions, remains on the table. An article written by Xander Elliott's. The National News on Wednesday the 21st of December. Nursing strikes in Scotland to go ahead as the Royal College of Nursing Union rejects pay offer. An article written by Steph Braun. A nursing union has overwhelmingly rejected the latest pay offer from the Scottish Government. In the consultative ballot for the Royal College of Nursing Scotland, or RCN, which closed at midday on Monday, 82% of members voted to reject the revised offer. The union will now continue planning for strike action, with dates to be announced in the new year. Members of the Royal College of Midwives, or RCM, have also voted against the offer and will meet to decide plans for a walkout. Julie Lamberth, Royal College of Nursing Scotland Board Chair, said the ball is now in the Scottish Government's court if it wants to avoid industrial action. She said, It was the right thing to ask our members whether to accept or reject this offer. It directly affects their lives and each eligible member needs to be given the chance to have their say. The result could not be clearer. 
We have forcefully rejected what the Scottish Government said is its best and final offer. Make no mistake, we do not want to go on strike. Years of being undervalued and understaffed have left us feeling we have been left with no option, because enough is enough. The ball is in the Scottish Government's court if strike action is going to be avoided. It comes after the GMB union became the first to knock back the offer last week. The Scottish Government had negotiated a pay increase equivalent to an average of 7.5%. RCN's General Secretary Pat Cullen had previously praised Nicola Sturgeon for the way in which she engaged with unions. In an interview with the BBC's Laura Koonsberg, she said coming to a quick resolution with Miss Sturgeon in Scotland was an example of how nurses are not for digging in in the dispute. The union paused plans for industrial action while it considered the latest offer ministers had put on the table, but members have now rejected it. Almost two-thirds of RCM members voted against accepting the pay offer. It said while it offered welcome improvement for early career midwives and maternity support workers, it did little to improve the take-home pay of the majority of RCM members in Scotland. Jackie Lambert, RCM Director for Scotland, said... Our members have spoken loud and clear. The latest pay offer by the Scottish Government is simply not good enough. It goes nowhere near addressing the rising cost of living and would see many midwives actually worse off in real terms. Our maternity services are continuing to face staffing challenges. In many places, it's only the goodwill and commitment of midwives and their colleagues that keep these services going. Those same midwives and maternity support workers often find themselves working 12-hour shifts with no breaks and even staying beyond those long shifts just because there's no one to relieve them. They do it because they care and because it's what women and families need and we know those same women and families really value them for it. We've written to the Cabinet Secretary and said that it's not too late to avert strike action. We just need to get back round the table. Members of the Unite and Unison unions voted to accept the offer last week and called off planned strikes. Health Secretary Hamza Youssef said on Twitter, Disappointed, the RCN and the RCM have rejected our record pay deal. However, I respect the voice of their membership. Meaningful dialogue has helped avoid strikes thus far. I'll continue my engagement and I'm due to meet the unions tomorrow. We leave no stone unturned to ensure we avoid strikes this winter. An article written by Steph Braun. The National, on Wednesday the 21st of December. Opinion. Did we learn nothing from Diana's death? A column written by Karen Adam. Moments in history are often synonymous with a global wave of grief and later a recollection of memories of those times. Moments like when JFK was shot or when Elvis Presley died. My mother was a huge Elvis fan and would often speak of the grief she felt for someone she hadn't met, but whom she admired. I'm an Elvis fan too, and although I don't recall that time, having only been two years old, I certainly knew the story behind it and felt the ripples of the shock through the media. Still, to this present day, we see and hear fans' reaction to the news. For me and my generation, I think that comparative moment was hearing the shocking news that Princess Diana had died. For everyone, regardless of their stance on the royalty, it was an authentic national period of shock, disbelief and mourning. 
Over the coming days and weeks after her death, the stories of the chase were being pieced together, and it became a major talking point. Maybe it was a mutual feeling of guilt and regret at buying into the sensationalist news. The desire to know exactly what was happening in her life had been triggered by the media feeding us for years. To see what she was up to was part of our daily lives. It was almost like a Truman Show-type relationship we had with her. Although it may have seemed innocent, our ignorance meant we didn't understand how devastating an impact this constant attention could have been on her, and ultimately was. The effects of this hounding by the press and her death were obviously more intimately felt by her close relatives, and of course by her children. I will never forget watching those young boys walk behind her coffin. Amidst all the thousands of people and noise, there stood two lads, no doubt still babies to their mum, grieving her loss. Having lost my mother in my twenties, I can't imagine what they must have been going through, and all so publicly. With how well informed we are now in regards to mental health, I think we can all agree that the trauma faced by them that day and the events leading up to it would have had a significant impact on their lives. Watching the Harry and Meghan Netflix series, I can see what they were trying to achieve. An antidote in some ways to the press, taking ownership of their story and having control over it. I'm sure in many ways it's cathartic to get the truth out and tell your own story. As sad as it is that they would need to do this, it's also a way to humanise themselves. Too often in the press and on social media, we dehumanise others. Some of the vitriol just would not ever be said in a face-to-face situation, and if they really needed to say it, then behind closed doors to a confidant would be the place. That paparazzi frenzy is now open season to all online, and it's dangerous. I was absolutely disgusted by Jeremy Clarkson's piece on Meghan Markle. I couldn't believe that for one, a man would be that enraged at a person who has zero impact on his life, and two, the editorial standard was to let that pass into the public domain. Make no mistake, that piece will embolden misogynists to act. This kind of rhetoric doesn't go past without consequences. It spills out to an abuser who just needs to feel they're justified in their treatment of women, and off they go. The written word is a powerful tool which can be used to stir up emotions, and what that article did was to invoke hate on a black, Asian and minority ethnic woman, a mother who wants to protect her children, one who has just clearly stated publicly that she had got to the point of wanting to end her own life, which was because of the press. To wish her naked shows the level of dehumanisation he is stooped to. To then wish people threw feces at her was unbelievably appalling. For a white, straight man to be bullying a black, Asian and minority ethnic woman like that in the press makes me wonder, if we're serious about ending femicide, how is this allowed? Have we forgotten the lessons learned from Diana's experience? Have we not acknowledged the impact that must have had on her son, who clearly just wants to keep his family safe? Harry knows where this could all end. I'm angry at the level of misogyny which is still seemingly acceptable in society. The continual reinforcement of rejecting stereotypes is exhausting. The minute a woman shows her strengths and takes initiative, she's pulled apart and the tropes roll out. Hysterical, controlling, manipulative, bossy. These are by design used to ensure we're not taken seriously. 
flipping these tropes to being emotionally intelligent, organised, persuasive and commanding, turns it all on its head. Our language matters and our written words matter too. We shall never know what goes on behind closed doors, but we do know what we see clear as day in front of us. On the news, in print and on social media, we see it. The extra layer that this makes some people a lot of money is particularly disturbing. We can help by not clicking the link or buying the paper. We can also write in and complain, start a campaign and join activists in our fight to end violence against women and girls. The threat to our safety and our progression in life has always been the patriarchal structures that emboldens and protects this kind of behaviour. Patriarchal institutions are figuratively tall structures built to uphold the imbalance of power. Only by working intersectionally as marginalised groups gathering together to fight our common enemy can we topple it. A column written by Karen Adam, who is the SNP MSP for Banffshire and Buchan Coast. The National, on Wednesday the 21st of December. Opinion. Musk could well be the end for Twitter. A column written by the Wee Ginger Doug. For years, Twitter has been the go-to social media platform for journalism and politics. However, it's also always been a deeply problematical platform, rife with abuse, insults and sheer nastiness. This is, of course, an issue for all social media platforms, but on Twitter, the problems are exacerbated by the site's format. The character limit ensures that exchange are conducted in the form of quips and one-liners, which often substitute unpleasantness for wit with no space for nuance. The platform is designed to create addiction, with many users obsessively scrolling for likes and retweets. Twitter, at best, is informative and very funny, a means of keeping abreast of new stories as they break. At worst, it is toxic and vile. But even when it's at its best, Twitter is quite simply kryptonite for anyone's mental health. Twitter moderation was always patchy and poorly effective, but the problems have only got worse since it was taken over by self-proclaimed free speech warrior Elon Musk, whose free speech absolutism does not apparently extend to criticism of him and his business practices, or to tweets containing links to alternative platforms such as Mastodon. Upon taking charge of Twitter, Mr Musk eviscerated the platform's moderation team and restored the accounts of many users who had previously been banned for hate speech or for spreading misinformation about the 2020 US election or vaccines and the Covid pandemic, including racists, anti-Semites and white supremacists. Mr Musk's $44 billion takeover of the company provoked a mass exodus of staff from Twitter. Mr Musk fired half of Twitter staff and threatened to sack the remainder unless they pledged to work long hours at high intensity. This led to the resignation of 1,200 more staff. Mr Musk attempted a disastrous change to verified blue-tick accounts, allowing any user to purchase a blue-tick for $8 per month. The blue-tick previously allowing users to be certain that a tweet really did originate from a high-profile individual or company immediately led to a rash of impersonators when changed. Pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly stopped showing ads on Twitter the day after an account impersonating the company posted. We're excited to announce insulin is free now. 
the exodus of staff who have the knowledge and experience to keep the platform running, along with the restoration of accounts previously banned for unacceptable behaviour, plus the virtual destruction of effective moderation, have led many to fear for the future of the platform. This week, Mr Musk ran a poll asking if he should step down as head of Twitter and promised to abide by the result. 57.5% of more than 17 million voters said he should go. However, Mr Musk now seems to be looking for a get-out clause, replying, interesting, to a suggestion that results were skewed by fake accounts. Mr Musk's tenure has been a disaster, but Twitter will not suddenly implode. Glitches and temporary outages may increase in number, quality of content will deteriorate, misinformation will become rife. Hateful and abusive tweets will increase in number. Users will vote with their feet and quietly leave. A recent report from Media Matters for America found that half of Twitter's top 100 advertisers appear to no longer be advertising on the site since Mr Musk's takeover. 2023 could well be the year in which one of the former giants of social media goes the same way as MySpace. A column written by the Wee Ginger Doug. The National News on Wednesday the 21st of December. Royal Mail confirms strikes to take place days before Christmas. An article written by Laura Pollock. Royal Mail has confirmed further strikes will take place two days before Christmas. The strikes will go ahead in the days before Christmas after a union said the company had turned down an offer of negotiations to resolve a dispute over pay, jobs and conditions. The Communication Workers' Union, or CWU, said its members will walk out on Friday the 23rd and Saturday the 24th of December. An offer extended to the company to suspend the strikes and establish a period of calm from now until the 16th of January 2023, as well as the union and the company both signing a joint statement incorporating Royal Mail's latest promise of no compulsory redundancies, was rejected almost immediately, said the union. The strikes will be the 17th and 18th days of action in the increasingly bitter dispute. CWU General Secretary Dave Ward said, For Royal Mail Group to reject our offer just hours after receiving it demonstrates that they were never serious about saving Christmas for customers and businesses. When a company openly boasts of having built a £1.7 billion fund to crush its own workers rather than use that money to settle the dispute and restore the service, then you know dark forces are clearly at work. Their sole intention is to destroy the jobs of postal workers and remove their union from the workplace. Our members will not stand for this and further action will take place in 2023. Our message to the public and businesses is that postal workers do not want to be here, but they're facing an aggressive, reckless and out-of-control chief executive committed to wrecking their livelihoods. An article written by Laura Pollock. The National Politics on Wednesday the 21st of December. Slump in UK's gross domestic product shows Brexit is not working, say the SNP. An article written by Steph Braun. New analysis showing the UK's gross domestic product slumped by 5.5% in the second quarter of the year has intensified calls for Scottish independence. 
The SNP has said it is clear self-determination for Scotland is the only way forward, after a report by John Springford at the Centre for European Reform concluded that between April and June, the UK's economic output after Brexit was £33 billion lower than if it was still part of the EU, resulting in around £12 billion in lost tax revenues. Since 2018, Mr Springford has been modelling the economic performance of a UK that remained within the European Union, using data from countries which performed similarly to the UK prior to Brexit. Stuart Hosey, the SNP's economy spokesperson, said it's yet another statistic which shows Brexit was a mistake. He said... This latest analysis makes plain the harsh economic truth about Brexit that only the SNP is willing to say. Brexit is not working for Scotland or the UK. From the outset, losing barrier-free trade and freedom of movement has been an unmitigated disaster for businesses and households in every part of the country. However, with both the Tories and Labour ruling out a return to the world's largest single market, more and more people in Scotland are recognising that independence is the only way to escape the economic harm of Brexit and Westminster. Six consecutive polls show a majority of people in Scotland now want the chance to choose their own future and that support for independence is growing. Yet, despite Labour and the Tories declaring in 2014 that it's for the Scottish people to decide how Scotland is governed, they both continue to deny the democratic mandates to hold another referendum. Yet, this devastating indictment of the harm caused by Brexit reinforces why the people of Scotland must have their say and get to choose a different path to a more prosperous, fairer and greener country in the European Union. Last year, research showed the UK's decision to break away from the EU cost service exports more than £110 billion over a four-year period. From 2016 to 2019, service exports from the UK were cumulatively £113 billion lower than they would have been had the UK voted to remain in the EU, according to researchers at Aston University in Birmingham. A study from Ireland's Economic and Social Research Institute earlier this year also found that Brexit had cut exports from the UK to the EU by 16%, compared to expected levels if the UK had voted to remain. An article written by Steph Braun. Recorded from the National on the 21st of December 2022. From the Culture section, recorded by Amy. How to Avoid Food Poisoning This Season by Gregor Young. Food Standards Scotland, FSS, has shared some of its top tips and advice to help the Scottish public avoid food poisoning over the festive period. The advice comes after the FSS Food in Scotland Consumer Tracking Survey revealed just 11% of consumers use a thermometer to check their food is cooked to a safe temperature. 21% will eat chicken or turkey which is pink or has pink red juices and 60% think they are unlikely to get food poisoning from food prepared at home. FSS has produced a Christmas food safety checklist highlighting the best ways of reducing the risks of food poisoning. This recommends that everyone cooks their Christmas turkey to 75 degrees in the thickest part of the bird, while making sure juices run clear and no pink meat is visible. Leftovers should be stored in containers in the fridge within two hours and then eaten within two days or frozen. Checking and following use by dates is critical, FSS says. Shops will be selling turkey, duck, 
Capon and Goose products that may have been previously frozen and defrosted before being placed on sale as chilled, and FSS is reinforcing its advice to always check the label for correct storage and cooking advice. Jane Horn, Head of Food Protection Science and Surveillance Branch at FSS, said, Food poisoning can be terrible for anyone, but can be more severe for those at higher risk, such as the elderly, young children and those with weakened immune systems. We would urge everyone in Scotland to check out our Christmas food safety checklist. See the FSS website for more. That article was by Gregor Young. Recorded from the National on the 21st of December 2021. From the Culture section, recorded by Amy. Glasgow-based silversmith wins unique prize for goblet work by Adam Robertson. A Glasgow-based silversmith has received a unique award where the prize is the chance to create a handmade goblet that will become part of a highly prestigious collection. Hayes Bearder, 23, left Guernsey to study at Glasgow School of Art, GSA, where he fell in love with the city in Scotland. He has now been named the Incorporation of Goldsmiths of the City of Edinburgh's Outstanding Student of the Year. Each entrant was invited to submit a design in response to the brief for a functional silver goblet which was then reviewed by a panel of judges. The winner is given a substantial commission as well as support from a mentor to realise their vision. The design by Caius, called the Monolith Goblet, takes him back to his roots. He said, I grew up in Guernsey and this goblet is inspired by the island's coastline and engraved with a pattern that creates the effect of sunlight falling on the sea. Now an artist in residence at the GSA, Caius sees his future as being based in Scotland and the award as a career breakthrough. He continued, Winning is a real confidence booster and shows me that if someone wanted to commission a piece of work of this type and scale, I could say yes, and also that I could make pieces like this independently of being commissioned. I love Scotland and there's so much going on here for silversmiths. Glasgow is such a friendly city to live in and professionally is excellent and the networks are great. This particular award is dated to 2009 and is ministered on behalf of the centuries-old incorporation of goldsmiths of the City of Edinburgh. Each goblet becomes a part of the incorporation's permanent collection, which is displayed at the Edinburgh Assay Office and is used during special events and banquets. Bearder's mentor was Karen Westland, the 2014 winner of the same prize, who said, It was a pleasure to support Chaos with the making of the sophisticated and elegant goblet design. Chaos considered approach combined with enthusiasm to push his skills resulted in a professional approach to the commission and the quality silver goblet to be enjoyed by many in future years. That article was by Adam Robertson. Reported from the National on the 22nd of December 2022. From the Culture section, recorded by Amy. Letters. How Scots played a key role in Argentina's victory in the World Cup. By readers of the National. With Argentina winning the World Cup for the third time under superstar captain Lionel Messi, let us not forget the key role that Scots played in this success. Beyond current Argentine player Alexis McAllister, whose ancestry can be traced back to Fife, it was two Scots, Alexander Watson-Hutton and Alex Lamont, who were responsible for developing the game in the country. Indeed, Watson-Hutton is considered the father of Argentine football. Born in the Garbles in 1853, he emigrated to Argentina in 1882, where he taught at St Andrew's Scott School in Buenos Aires, and then went on to found 
Buenos Aires English School. In 1891, the Association Argentine Football League was established by another Scot, Alex Lamont, who was head teacher at St Andrews School. It is recognised as the first football league in the country, as well as outside the British Isles. It lasted only one season and was won by a team of Scots from St Andrews. Two years later, Watson Hutton established the Argentine Association Football League and restarted the tournament. In 1898, his school formed a football team which went on to become the most decorated team in Argentine football until its dissolution in 1911. So when one witnesses the ecstatic scenes in Argentina, spare a thought for the pivotal role played by Scots in that nation's footballing success. Alex Orr, Edinburgh. I write this in a France awash with round ball tears, but as a Scots-Irish McAllister strode the park on Sunday and a border brown scored the opener in 1986, Perhaps it is time for little debt recognition from the victors. No Scots, no Argentine football. For the first 20 years of its existence, we Scottish-born and Disparin made it and ran it. Alex Watson-Hutton is known there as the father of the game. Alex Lamont was its first administrator. Arnott Leslie, its early Alex Ferguson. Two of his brothers played for the first and second Argentine national teams. John Anderson was the... Albilisles, first captain, and in 11, with a total of six of us. There were the Buckins, even earlier, but same Border Browns, six of whom would play for their adopted country. John Caldwell, whose family still stay in Glasgow and others. And that is just Buenos Aires. And the second city of Ros- Rosario, Messi's hometown, its two teams are Newell's and Central. First president, Colin Bain Calder, born Dingwall, an early star player, his brother-in-law, Miguel Green, family from East Calder. But to the point, as payment for the debt, we may have the World Cup on display for a week a year at Hamden. This is before the contest restarts in North America, with the US's first ever World Cup team, including five Scots and a Scots manager, reaching the semi-final to be defeated by Argentina. But then that's another true story. Ian Campbell-Whittle, Achille to be, to be, Jeremy Clarkson's views on our First Minister and Meghan Markle are only part of an ongoing campaign of vilification against these women, planned behind the scenes by the establishment and given a public platform by the gutter press. There is no doubt that the unlovely Jeremy did not suddenly commit himself to paper off his own bat. The powerful forces that control most of the press in the UK will have used his reputation for outrageous statements as a handy conduit for getting their own views across. All carefully choreographed. It speaks volumes that, instead of the subtle and insidious propaganda historically associated with the British state, they feel free these days to openly use the likes of Clarkson to push their agenda. All nuance is gone. Why should they bother with subtlety in the current political climate, when after more than four decades of right-wing government, there even there exists such a hate-filled reactionary environment, evidenced by Brexit and the promotion of racist warmongers to high political positions in Westminster? The British state has a history of killing off its opponents before subjecting their reputation and memory to vile propaganda, hoping to justify government action in retrospect. I hope the disgusting diatribes against Nicola Sturgeon and Meghan Markle are not precursors to anything more sinister. Taking on the establishment is a dangerous game. Remember Willie McRae and Dr David Kelly. Jim Butchart via email. My letter in last week's Sunday National stated that John McLean was appointed so Soviet Council in England, and it should, of course, have been Scotland. Big difference. The Soviet Union also prescribed a John McLean commemorative stamp on the anniversary of his birth in 1979. 
Can we expect the UK anti-Soviet Union to publish one in the anniversary of his death, which was on St Andrew's Day, November 30th, 1923? Donald Anderson, Glasgow. That article was by the readers of The National. And that was this week's The National podcast, only recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.